You're listening to Trek FM. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. You will give the people of Earth an ideal to strive towards. They will race behind you. They will stumble. They will fall. But in time, they will join you when the sun comes. In time, you will help them accomplish wonders. Welcome everyone to Trek FM's local watering hole. We're hosts from our network and then friends, we just drop by and talk all things geeky. Uh, I hope that you have ordered something special from Ruby tonight. Uh, She's in a fine mood. Uh, Norm has been asking her again uh, about uh, certain names. She's turned them down, Uh, but she brought us shots over as a consolant. So that was nice. Uh, Of course, I'm Matt Rushing and with me tonight I have uh, a great gallery of rogues here. Uh, Norm, it's great to have you back on the show. Great to be back. And uh, yeah, Ruby's in a good mood because I only pestered her once. I promised not to do it again. She doesn't believe me. So I don't know what to do. It's getting harder and harder every week. That's what (laughs) she said. (laughs) Oh, Will, hey, how's it going? It's great to have you back. Thank you. It's good to be back. Uh, We've assembled quite the Justice League uh, right now. I think, obviously, the listeners can't see this, but three out of the four of us have Justice League, or, you know, actually two of you have Superman shirts. I have a Green Lantern shirt. Uh, Norm has a Sriracha shirt, so he's uh, Sriracha Man. Uh, It's a red S. It counts. (laughs) It does count. It stands for hope. It stands for spice. No, here, here it's an S. So... <laughs> well, and it's funny, Will. You were talking about we've got these uh, the superhero shirts here, but uh, I love that my superhero shirt is the Man of Steel one, and right mm-hmm. now Daniel's looks like Superboy uh, because right. he's got the black and the red. So yeah, we really do have like a, a super collection here. Uh, Daniel, great to have you back in the six hundred two. How's it going? I just, I, I, it's great. I just want everybody to know that I'm no less of a man, even though I'm super boy at at, at the time. I'm just, oh I'm just no, saying, I mean know. he can. No, I mean just because we call her super girl doesn't mean I have any less respect for her it, either. So exactly, yeah, exactly, yeah. Well, this is a show. Um, I love the fact that I get to do the six hundred two. It has been one of the joys of. Trek FM and and you know having my own show and getting to talk about things that I really love and for me the moment I knew that I was going to do this show I knew I was going to talk about this film and it is a movie that has it has created just some visceral reaction on all sides uh, and it is one of those films that people just ardently love and then on the other side people ardently hate they just they hate this movie and then there are the people that can kind of be in between and then eh, it was okay whatever i could take it or leave it but it's it's really the people that i feel like on on the polar opposites that kind of tend to be the loudest especially still even online and so tonight we're gonna dive into and set flight with it with a film that is is I, I will be honest, is is one of my favorites, uh, and we're going to talk about Man of Steel tonight, and I thought that the best place to start would honestly just to be able to kind of start with the way the film does and talk about 
Krypton itself and the way that they create a Krypton that is completely different from everything that we saw with the 78 film and in the way Richard Donner had it where it's for the where it's very stark it's it's very clean and this one has a just a, a, a really sci-fi feeling to it uh, what did you guys think of Krypton when you, when you first saw the film and and even now with you know rewatching the film I'm sure a couple of times since it's been out well I, I loved it frankly I think it was a very bold choice I think you hit the nail around the head when you say that the Donner interpretation of Krypton with the icicles and you know that clear white aesthetic it's so iconic so for them to take this step is a clear indication on their part that this is going to be a different Superman and I just love the fact that you know it's clearly a futuristic civilization but it's also so old and organic and if you look at it it's just you can just tell it's been there for a very long time it has almost like a medieval Game of Thrones type feel in that council you walk in like they're wearing like futuristic chain mail it's just it feels like an old but advanced society and I think that was just brilliant on their part to kind of do that yeah the interesting thing about the design direction between the 1978 film and this in the Man of Steel was that you're dealing with very robust and well thought out technologies because in the 1978 film you're dealing with this whole crystalline technology and that's how they kind of interpreted uh, the culture of Krypton, and not just in that film, but in all the subsequent Christopher Reeve films, and then in Smallville as well. But the really neat thing about The Man of Steel is that they still they went deep into that type of cultural iconography with the with the technology, and it showed that this was a great civilization in decline, not only because of what was happening with the environment, but also what was happening with the politics of the time. So. You could tell you could tell that it was once a great culture, and, and obviously there was an issue with that because they had to go out and become a spacefaring race uh, as their home planet was in decline. So, but they did a really good job at tying it all together and creating this really nice through line that that pulls all of that technology from Krypton through you know all the technology you saw on Earth uh, with Superman and and his his search for uh, his identity. Yeah, uh, you know, it, it, interesting points, and I don't want to start off being the contrarian, though I, I imagine I'll probably be for a good a good portion of the episode. Uh, I kind of I, I I didn't I didn't I don't dislike it. I don't dislike what they do with Krypton here. Uh, I actually kind of got bored of this stale kind of one, literally like one color, kind of everything is white and everything is just crystally and sharp and pointy that we get from like we said, 1978 onward uh, of the Krypton. Uh, but I, I don't know. I felt like it was kind of, it was inoffensive, but it was kind of a generic sci-fi planet, Naboo kind of like, this is just what we do, and this is just kind of, I, I don't know. I, didn't, I, didn't, I don't get the same sense that it was like uh, the super advanced race. Like he jumps onto the back of this dragonfly bug thing, dragon thing, and I'm like, wait, you have, you've been spacefaring civilization for 100,000 years, allegedly, and you can't come up with anything that's faster or better than these things that you just have growing on the planet. I don't, it was, it's inoffensive. I don't have any problem with Krypton as it's presented. I like it. It's more interesting than what we had been given in the past. Uh, but I, you know, I can take it or leave it. I think one of the interesting things about the, the whole Krypton scene is that it does take into account a lot of the things that you would see in the comics, especially like the birthright comic, 
where Krypton looks more like a, a sci-fi place than it does a, you know, that, that stark, clean, crystalline entity kind of look. Uh, and it, it made it feel more like a real civilization, you know. And uh, one of the things that I thought was so interesting is, is all the things that they really build into this Krypton, too, is they're, they're telling you a lot in, in a short amount of time at the beginning of the film about what the society has done to itself. You know, it's, it's become isolationist where it used to be an expansion uh, territory. I mean, you know, they used to be sending out spacefaring uh, fleets to colonize and they've pulled themselves back and stopped doing that. They've become a, a society that genetically engineers itself. Uh, so nobody has any choice. There's no free will on Krypton. Everybody is created to fill a certain role um, and all of those things really added to the, uh, I thought, the interest of the, the storyline in this place that Superman comes from um, to kind of mirror some of the things, obviously, uh, what sci-fi does is kind of mirror things we see on our own planet and the things that we need to be careful of. You know, I mean, obviously, Krypton mines itself to death till it explodes because it's it's not willing to do what it takes to continue to explore the galaxy and that kind of stuff so all of that i thought that that's to me one of the the most interesting parts where all of the philosophical things that they were setting up with this society that were going to come into play later with and, and be a direct dichotomy of who Jarrell and his wife want clark to be as well as the way Clark's going to be raised in America, you know, that, that Americanism that comes through that, you know, is so important to the who the Superman character is. Uh, you, you know, you can't take that away from him ever. You know, as, again, I was reading the making of and Christopher Nolan was talking about that idea is you can't take that out of Superman. You know, he's it's in a very important part of who he becomes. Um, and, uh, you know, in the end, too, he's a. Uh, He's an immigrant. He's an alien who's come to America just like all the other immigrants to, to make his way. And uh, I think it just sets a great mirroring position to watch these two different planets spread across, you know, how who, we don't even know how many uh, millions of light years probably uh, to see the juxtaposition of them. I, I really like that. So, uh, And I just really like... Um, the place feels vibrant it feels like a real civilization whereas like when i watched the 78 film uh, it definitely looks like a place that's about to die you know there's no life on the planet except for the people there you know it looks like how do you even live here in the first place it's very boring and like so stark like why would you even want to live here in the that, that point so it kind of made i felt like the idea of wanting to save this planet, you know, important there, the, you know, Zod is feeling like he's fighting over something, you know, that the culture and, and the planet itself is a place that you'd actually want to fight over because you'd want to protect and save. Yeah, I think that's, that's an important point. And I, I really like the fact that, you know, it's mentioned that Cal is the first natural born Kryptonian in, you know, generations and that it's this big secret. And I think they mentioned that and i think it 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 has a through line in terms of saying how cal is significant how he's different than other kryptonians but at the same time it's also he is the very embodiment of what that true kryptonian or what a true kryptonian is despite being essentially raised on earth so i think it's interesting because he really is 
that nexus of he's everything a Kryptonian should be, but at the same time, he's also the, the, the demarcation of the end of an old Krypton, the old Krypton that had everything planned out genetically. And he's the start of essentially a new type of Kryptonian that can live amongst humans, live in, in a new world. So I think that was a really intriguing uh, plot point. I don't think has I don't think it's ever been mentioned in any other Superman Superman comics. I think that the fact that they had such a original idea um, was was pretty cool for me. Now the whole thing, the choice of making the the codex, the the, the design that it was that's that was hinting towards Brainiac, wasn't it? Um, I think so. Um, I, I mean, who knows where they'll go next? You know, the, I think that they've done a lot of things where they can pull from here, here in, in the film and, and say, oh, this is where Brainiac comes from or, oh, this is how we could, you know, have a doomsday or, or something like that. So I think they've just left a lot of those things open to interpretation so that you could go back and, and interpret and say, hey, this is this is where we're getting this, you know, and it sort of in a man of steel. So. Uh, leaving those doors open without necessarily maybe even thinking about it. I think one of the coolest parts was the fact that where Superman gets his costume, the fact that Martha Kent, you know, usually is the one who makes it for him out of, you know, what comes out of the pod that he's in and uh, is always been a little bit silly to me. So I really love the way that they, the suit that Clark wears is, is, something that is traditional wear on Krypton it's your skin suit and then your the armor that they wear or the the clothing they wear goes over that so just even having those kind of things uh, just kind of explained in some ways I, I just liked you know to give a reason for it and that connection to Krypton as much as you know what it will be later on and then too I love the you know the symbol means hope um, and then that comes directly from the Birthright comic. Speaking of the suit um, specifically, though, a big problem I have, at least with the way that 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 the um, and I, I don't, I mean, you could easily retcon this, but but the way that the movie presents it, you, like this ship has been the scout ship, the Kryptonian scout ship that's been under the ice for twenty thousand years, and now it just happens to have Superman's suit in it. Like, how does? Like you could just say that since Jor, I don't know. You could probably just somehow re- like there's a there's a replicator on the ship. I guess you could say, and and Jor-El was like, "I'm gonna make you this," but it feels to me like it felt kind of contrived that it was like, "Oh, and by the way, here's your suit that was just here the whole time for twenty thousand years." I never understood how that worked. It was actually Matthew and I had a pretty good discussion about this off off uh, off on another um, thread, and I think we came to the agreement, Matthew, that the key right right that was programmed by Jor-El was programmed with all of these intentions in mind so that wherever he took the key, wherever he ended up, he would be able to find any type of Kryptonian refuge ship or technology and he would be able to interface with that. And those plans have already been set in motion far beyond um, what we saw on screen. At least that's that's how I interpret it because it felt like he was really, like when when he was going to uh, launched the ship, he was racing against time to pretty much squeeze in every single possible plan that he had just to make sure that he didn't forget anything. And then I think that suit was part of that plan wherever he found any of the uh, the scout ships that, that the Kryptonians sent earlier on. Yeah. That's, that's how I, I And that's fine. Like, I don't, like, I, it's not a huge sticking point to me, but to, like, when you have to start filling those gaps, that to me becomes problematic. When you have to like, 
retcon in your own mind like oh he was thinking of this and even though like they had been space they hadn't been spacefaring i think as mentioned in the movie for thousands and thousands of years i think it's 20,000 yeah, years right. right so like it's like it's kind of abs- I, I don't care it's sci-fi it's fine i can i it's not a huge to me it's not a huge point but like when he was like it was like right after the scene where they were like this thing has been under the ice for 20,000 years oh and by the way here's your pristine brand new superman suit here you go you know it just i was just like oh okay i don't really see how that works but that's fine i i think for me personally like when i saw that you know I instantly thought, like, this is the ultimate USB port. <laughs> like, this is the ultimate USB drive that you can plug right. in, yeah. and you can plug it into the Scout chip. You can plug it into Zod chip. It's going to generate a Russell Crowe hologram that will inform you about <laughs> everything. I think that's – I think you either buy into it or you don't. For me, I think it worked for me. I can understand where some people be like, oh, it even has the colors too, right? It even has the colors already pre-painted. I understand where that's coming from. I think – I think I was able to fill in the blanks for myself personally, but I could definitely see how someone who was accustomed to, you know, Martha Kent literally making that uniform using the, you know, the color palette of the American flag and all of that stuff, seeing that all of a sudden a spaceship that's 20,000 years old will automatically have that suit ready to go. You know, I can understand that disconnect, but for me it worked because I just bought into the idea that this Kryptonian technology apparently has a great interface that could work for thousands of years. Uh, no problem. And there's not going to be any software updates. It's going to work seamlessly. I think for me it worked, but you know, you're going to have to buy into that conceit, I guess. I will say one thing though, that actually fills another plot point that I have a problem with. If it is a USB port, um, cause you know how, like when you're not looking at the USB port, you have to flip the thing over like three times in order to get it in. That that totally that totally makes sense at the end of the, uh, of the movie when they're trying to get it in and like the lightning is kind of pushing it out. It's 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 the reason why they can't just push it in. Apparently, I I don't know why that happened later on in the movie, but it's like a USB. It's like a standard USB. Unless you're looking at it, you you can't actually get it in there. <laughs> yeah, I always just I think even the first time I saw the mil- the film, I just took it that. Once you insert your key, the the ship is set for your house, and therefore anything that you need, clothing wise, that it it manufactures for you, it, it it just automatically gives you you know your house seal and and all of that. And so, yeah, I, I can understand it where you're coming from for sure because it's it's definitely not explained, and I think it is kind of one of those superhero contrivances that that you know do we spend the five minutes for him to talk about how we got this or do we just give it to you and and you just accept it because it's a movie so i completely get that um well well, the one thing i i just don't want us to gloss over this and, and for the listeners out there i don't i don't want them to think that we're glossing over this that there is so much information the volume of information that we are taking into man of steel that we already know of superman is really difficult to leave behind because we're all fans of Superman. And we we went to this movie because we wanted to see where this new story was going to take us. But I think it would be dishonest to say that we could leave all of what we know of Superman at the door, at the, the at the at the theater door and say like, "You know what? I'm going to go in here with completely unbiased experience." And that kind of colors the way we look at this movie because we want to see something new, yet we want to we're always clinging on to the greatness of Superman that brought us here. So again, with the with the suit, with the yellow and the blue and the red, I mean, we all know what that was. It's a little difficult to accept 
how it has been translated. But at the same time, though, it was translated, in my opinion, really smartly. But when I'm watching it, at least when I was watching it in the theater, those two those two facets of design, those two facets of the history of the suit or the history of the technology or the history of the civilization and the history of Krypton, they were all kind of clashing at the same time in my head because I'm like, no, that's, that's not what I remember or that's not what I read in the comic. But at the same time, I'm trying to accept the fact that this is something new and something fresh and something in a completely different uh, take and, and, and direction and, and vision of Superman. And that's, it's easier to accept it with more viewings with a little bit of distance from when I originally th- saw it in the theaters. And I'm not sure if it's the same for everybody else, but the more I see it now, the better the experience is because I'm not taking all of that in with me anymore. That's a really great point, Norm. I think I think going on as we continue the discussion, I think expectations is, is going to factor in so much for this movie. I, I don't think, outside of Star Trek, I think this is probably one property that has so much continuity or like, a universe built around it going into it. So that's going to color your reaction to it. And I think, I think we'll cover it later, but that's, that's huge. That's pretty much everything about this movie, which makes it so polarizing. Well, I call it the Yoda factor. It's like, you know, what's in there, only what you bring in with you, you know? So whatever expectations you bring into that theater about this movie, whether you're going to be open-minded about it, or you're going to be biased about it, it's, it's just human nature to do that. And then, Again, there is so much volume and so much of a linear collection of understanding of Superman before you walk into Man of Steel because Man of Steel really takes it in a really amazing new direction, but it's hard to accept it at the get-go, but I think it's easier to accept it, again, with more viewings. And I think that that is one of the most interesting things, especially about Superman, is that Every iteration of Superman, even throughout the comics, has has kind of been something that reflects the time period with which he's in. You know, when he originally starts, he, he's a guy going after crooks and gangsters and, and those kind of people. Um, you know, he becomes kind of a... Um, the mob buster you know and and then you know, he, he morphs and changes throughout the years to kind of be... The, the character that that society needs salvation from, really, you know, or the thing that we perceive we need salvation from. And so once we get to, I think, where we are now in a, in a culture specifically that is in, in a lot of ways morally ambiguous, you know, we're not used to these, uh, the, we're definitely not used to self-righteous characters anymore, you know, uh, righteous heroes. We, we, we don't really respond to those as well, or at least we don't think we did. Um, and yet we still kind of want them all at the same time, but we don't know how to have them. It's, it's a really interesting thing to watch. And so, yeah, bringing all that in with Superman, even as, as silly as maybe even talking about a suit or any of those things, we bring all this baggage and, you know, any, any superhero whether you're reading a comic or you're watching a film interpretation, you know, film interpretation has to boil down the essentials of what they think the character is and put that on screen because they've got two hours to do it. You know, comic series has maybe 12 issues a year over however many years, you know, so uh, it's it's a lot harder, I think, to bring any of these characters to, to film and for me going in, I just, I remember thinking, well, I, I like what Christopher Nolan would did with Batman and I know he's involved and so I, I trust him to do the same thing that he did with Batman to kind of make Batman relevant for our day and age 
to do the same thing with Superman. And so um, I think when approaching even Krypton, they were trying to find a great way to use even that part of the film to talk about where we are today, you know, and to me, I, I enjoyed that. I think it's it's good filmmaking. And even this part of the film, it's 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 already making me think, you know, and, and ain't. Even if it's a superhero film, I, I want to be thinking. And that's, you know, for me, why I've always responded, especially responded to the latest Captain America film, uh, Winter Soldier. It was making me think the whole time. And I kept thinking afterwards. So one of the things, too, uh, just real quick for you guys, you know, uh, obviously uh, in this film, we, we changed the suit a little bit. Um, just what did you guys think about the suit and, uh, for Man of Steel? Um, I think one of the comments, uh, I think one of the initial, the interviewed one of the producers or the uh, behind the scenes, um, I guess, designers, and they said the idea of the suit was to make it look like a suit of armor, to almost make it like a chainmail. So when you saw Henry Cavill in the light, it would look like he was literally gleaming because it almost looked like, you know, he has a great physique, obviously, for the movie, but the suit was fitted in such a way where you know, in certain pictures, the way the light hits him, it looks like it's shimmering, right? It looks like he's literally a man of steel, right? And I think, I think it was a, a really great uh, interpretation. Obviously, it goes into the interpretation of the different houses, their different types, you know, of uh, of garb. Um, you know, it was a futuristic take on it. Um, I like the fact that you know the individual seals are kind of like a part of the suit, and each little um, thread of it. Um, you know, I thought it was just a fresh, modern interpretation that's obviously still recognizably superman yeah i i i love i love the suit as well i don't I, I don't have any problems with it uh thank god they finally removed i'm sorry I, I i'm such a hater of the yellow superman shield on the on the cape i love when it's gone i mean i know it was gone in uh superman returns as well i think um one problem the only problem i have with it is like I kind of feel like this the cape is CGI all the time. I don't know what material it is. Like I always feel like it's just made of computer generated whatever. So I kind of don't get the weight of it. Uh, but that's a that's a that's a small problem. I think the suit is great and we get rid of the the un, you know the silly underwear, of course, right? And we finally just get a, a clean clean looking suit. I think it's fantastic. And and like all modern kind of uh, cinematic superheroes they they make it more textured right that's that's the idea and and even with in star trek right in in 09 and into darkness the same kind of it's the same kind of pattern you just you just you make it more textured and and real so i i think it, i think it's a i think it's a great suit for sure i think one of the things that was probably the biggest challenge for the costumers in this movie was to balance the deviation of of the new look versus the traditional look because Again, when you saw the suit for the first time and you read the forums and how everyone lit up and saying, like, this suit is ruining my childhood or they don't respect the the traditions that came before, I think that we really kind of have to hone in on what you said, Matthew, is that this is a Superman or this is a Man of Steel, not Superman yet. This is Man of Steel. This is Kal-El coming into this completely new environment, this new storyline, this new mythos, this new origin story. And you have to create... For future audiences, you have to create this new and logical progression of what makes sense to a modern aesthetic, to a modern audience. And the the superheroes that were created by, I mean, let's give respect to Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster, who created Superman. 
They created him in a look that befit the 1930s version of what a superhero to them would look like. And it would be this really bold, colorful, outlandish-looking character that transitioned to something that it stood the test of time for a long time, but it doesn't really kind of stand the test of time to a modern audience who are looking for something so textural and so visceral and so tactile because that's the way that the audience now accepts this type of a universe, this type of genre, you know? So it's a bold move and it's, it's daring. It's daring beyond belief because this is Superman. I mean, aside from, I believe the Christian cross, the Superman S, the S of hope or the house of L crest, whatever you want to call it is the most recognized symbol in the world. You know, if you just show that on a black and white card to somebody and say, like, what is this? Well, that's a cross. What is this? Well, that's Superman. Uh, Shaq has Without a tattoo knowing the history. It, so that's a pretty big deal. <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, it's, it's literally a big you know? deal. Shaq's a big yeah, guy. So, you know, when you, when the customers had to sit down and say, like, okay, we got to redo the costumes. I mean, okay, well, so, you know, you got to design a nice pantsuit for Lois Lane, some military costumes. Oh, by the way, you over there in the corner, you're designing the new Superman suit. How do you feel about that? I'd be terrified. You know, just from the just from the sheer magnitude of what that means to changing the history of Superman. So I thought they did a great job. I mean, I, I agree with everyone what everyone's saying. They did a great job with the look, the approach, the way that it came off on film. It's not like Henry Cavill had to get any bigger, you know, but <laughs> the suit really accentuated that and it, it made him look very godlike, and that's what Superman is, still is, is is a very godlike figure, and that suit just kind of brought out that that aspect of him. Well, and I think one of the coolest things, again, harkening back to, to Birthright and some of the other Superman comics, is that the suit reflects Krypton in, in all ways. And they, they really hearken that in this film. And I love that, that the suit had a purpose beyond just being, we need a costume for you to be in. It had it had Kryptonian heritage behind it. So it actually meant more than just, this is something that Martha made you. We just kind of took the pieces out of the pod and we created a suit for you, you know. No, this is actually something that would be worn on Krypton for a culture that was a, you know, a, a cape culture. They're a, a very old and and like obviously they're a dying culture, but they have a whole different way of doing things. They have their own aesthetic. You know, for them, this is normal clothing, uh, and so this is what goes under all that other armor. Other thing I like about it is that it also helps explain. And just a very, you don't even have to explain it, why Superman's suit can withstand all the things that he goes through. You know, I mean, he's learning how to fly and he falls and takes off the top of a mountain and his suit is still fine. He gets shot, his suit is still fine. Why? Because it's not made of human materials. It's made out of Kryptonian materials that are stronger. So, again, all of those kind of things they thought about and they poured into this this comes from people who are respecting the canon, not disrespecting it. They are drawing from and then making their interpretations on it. And and that's what comic writers do. That's what movie filmmakers do. And, you know, some people will respond to it and some people won't. This was definitely an area where I thought they just hit the nail on the head. And obviously it looks very similar to what we see for, you know, the new 52, where Superman does not have the shorts anymore. He just has that belt. So it, it's very much that modern look that we see. So the other thing that's very different about this film is the way that the story is told. Uh, we are very used to 
especially comic book movies that are going to be the origin stories of a character telling it in a linear progression. And this film doesn't do that. And um, I wanted to hear what you guys kind of thought about that non-linear storytelling that they use to kind of create a different feel for this origin story of Superman, especially in light of having an origin story for Superman with the 78 Donner film. I think it was great. I think because Superman is so iconic, you're you're almost faced with this catch-22 situation. You're, you're trying to reintroduce such an iconic character, but do you really want to take them through the entire origin story again? And I think it was a very clever way to, in a really small, relatively small collection of scenes, reintroduce a reinterpretation of how his origin um, came about, what his motivations are. I think that the flashback scenes really set the stage of setting a new environment and atmosphere in which Cal or, or Clark in operates in. It, it it was actually very reminiscent of, for me, the 2000 X-Men movie. It, this is a world of fear. They will, you know, we fear anything that is different from us. It was, you know, you know, Paul Kent's reactions to, you know, Clark's powers is very much how humans fear mutants in, in the 2000 X-Men. So it's it's not it's not a given that superheroes are going to be welcome with open arms and there are legitimate concerns about you know they're going to drag him away for testing, they're going to persecute you, they're going to to they are not going to welcome you. And I think those flashbacks just really allow them to have like an economy of of of, of um, economy of scale, I guess is the is the term of just showing in relatively small amount of scenes a really new take on just the, his origins, but also the atmosphere and environment which he now lives in. You know, the one thing that, um, and I love the movie, I love the way that the story is told, and I think that doing it in such a way where it's nonlinear progression is is very much a modern style of storytelling. I mean, you said, and it's very Nolan-esque. I mean, you had Jonathan and Christopher Nolan. Obviously, their influence is on this film. And... I think that in in choosing this type of narrative style, you are breaking free from a tradition of of the action adventure type of storytelling, which is usually um, goes hand in hand with with a superhero story, with something that's uh, that's something that's like a summer blockbuster. And I think that trying to approach the film in this way, they're trying to tell a more encapsulated personal story, and that's what these two gentlemen do very well, Jonathan and Christopher Nolan. The only thing that I'm a little wary of with their future movies is that they set the tone with Batman, Batman Begins, okay? And you have a very specific look and feel and pacing of, of the Batman story. And I felt that Zack Snyder didn't flex enough of his own independence as a storyteller because the Nolans were involved with it, so it became more of a Nolan slash Snyder type of film rather than a Snyder type of film per se. And I'm, I just don't want that to be kind of like the formulaic model of the DC style of storytelling because all of these different heroes have different flavors. And I want the directors to work with the writers to bring out those flavors and not fall back on something that worked so traditionally well as we saw it with Batman Return, or Batman Begins. So I like it, but I felt that it was held back a little bit because of the story format was so close to the way that they told Batman Begins. I mean, I cannot echo that sentiment more. I actually, I like the the flashback scenes. They're some of 
they're probably most of my favorite scenes uh, in the film. But but to me, it's just uh, it's just it's shadows of Batman Begins. It's exactly the way that they did Batman Begins. And it's like it, it you're you're right when we're talking about this and we're structuring this as a superhero film. It's not something that's done very often. But you know when you're going to compare two superheroes and and especially two DC superheroes, and then we see that. W- this this structure was was presented, and uh, I would say presented more successfully. Almost, oh god, I can't. Even, Batman Begins. I can't even remember when that came out. Uh, maybe five, seven, seven, two thousand five. Yeah, I think like it was years before this movie ever did. It's not like this that that, that this is innovating in a way that's that's interesting. It's it almost feels more like a copycat. Even though it does it successfully, I think it does it, uh, like I said, I like those scenes, but it's just like, I feel like it's just Nolan kind of impressing himself on onto the script and onto the story, and not that that's necessarily a bad thing, that's that's okay, uh, but uh, to me, it's, there's a lot of this, there's a lot of flavor of Batman Begins, but it, it it's not as strong. I guess is what I would say. It's a good a good example of I think Zack Snyder taking a very popular piece of work that's also very stylized and very thematic was Frank Miller's 300 because he understood the material but he was able to exercise I think a little bit more of his personal aesthetic onto that um, while respecting the material at the same time. So if I had to make a critique about Man of Steel, it was that I think there was a little bit more of an overarching Nolan esque flair. Uh, to the, the the overall presentation, but again, Daniel, you're right. The, if you're going to have it done, they do it the best. So the execution was great. It's just that I think that Superman has this really obviously strong brand identity and story identity that could have been pushed probably a little bit differently. I'm not sure how, but just to I don't know, just to bring it a little bit bigger, uh, a, bo- a more bolder flavor. And I think that would be the case except for one you know this this idea didn't start with Snyder it started with Nolan and Goyer while they were working on Dark Knight Rises and they came up with this idea so and they brought it to Zach Zach loved it and they did they give the movie to him and they ask him to direct it and he he runs with it so uh, at that point Nolan didn't have a lot to do with it because he was directing Dark Knight Rises didn't have time you know Zach and him would talk and stuff but it was was his film but I think that the reason that they go with the nonlinear storytelling here is is not just to to harken back at all to, to Batman Begins but I think that they wanted to find a way to make the story about Clark and his journey and to do that if you jump from Clark and his journey from Krypton right to him being a boy well, one, we have seen how many years of Smallville. Um, we've seen, you know, uh, there's all of these, yeah, 10 years of Smallville, which I love Smallville. But we have all of this stuff about the, the we have the Donner film. All of these things mean you need to tell this story differently. And so the only other way to do that is to do it nonlinearly. And, but I think what made this so successful, and I, I liked uh, what you were talking about, Daniel, I think what makes this really successful is that this movie, at its core, is about Clark on a journey to being the man he's going to become. And every flashback 
is is a way of pointing him towards that. You know, we're we're seeing the background that's informing who Clark is as he's making this journey and and what his parents have been afraid of, what, you know, um he has been afraid of, what he's wanted to do, what he hasn't gotten to do. Um yet all of these things really informing this character and I think it's the first time that we actually know who Clark is without the suit on film. You know, I don't feel like we really know that in the Donner movie um, as much as we do here. And and I don't feel like we uh, we get to feel what it's like to be this person before you're Superman either. The isolation, the the loneliness, this, the fear for yourself of not maybe being able to control yourself or what you could do at all of that that makes Superman actually pretty relatable character when you break down what it would be like to be this guy. You know, to always be living basically with a mask. You know, Clark Kent is his mask, I think. Um, he even says that in the New 52 comics to, to Diana because they're dating and he's dating Wonder Woman. He says, "I, Superman is me without the mask. Clark Kent is my mask. You know, I... I so I think that's a really interesting thing because Superman is is really who he is. Like with with all of the powers and everything, you know, he doesn't have to hide that whole side of himself, you know. But he also doesn't hate his alter ego, you know. Like he actually likes his alter ego. He likes who he is as that person as well. So it's it's not like they're clashing or fighting for attention. Clark is a more well-rounded person, obviously, than somebody like Bruce Wayne, uh, you know, who in some ways is really hiding behind his Batman mask so he can go out and kick some ass because he's upset still about his parents. You know, it's a, it's a whole different psychology there. <laughs> it's, it's the old, the classic uh, Kill Bill uh, debate, right? I mean, you got, if you guys, you guys have seen Kill Bill Volume 2, right, right, we all know that. Oh, yeah. The, that fantastic the end, yeah. monologue, mm-hmm. right, which is amazing, about who is the man, who is, is it Superman or is it Clark Kent? Uh, it's an interesting it's an interesting debate and I don't know that I'm as convinced that it is answered in this movie only because I don't feel like we spend enough time with Clark I, like we get enough time with the people around him who are telling him how special he is and how he's going to be the savior of the world I don't know I I watched this movie tonight and I don't know that we get enough sense of how he feels about the world uh to really kind of gauge where he is at, um, it you know it's an interesting subject, but like it, he he goes through these things and and he he doesn't make we don't I, I don't know I, I just never felt that we get a sense of motivation for for Clark for a good portion of this movie he's just kind of reacting to most things and. I, I don't know that I could say either way, which at least in the way that this movie presents it, if, if he is, if Clark is Clark, you know, if Clark is the true person or if the man of steel or Superman is, is the true person. I would say, I, I think to, to address your point, I think that's the inherent uh, challenge of, 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 of compressing so much of this, of this backstory into a movie that's supposed to be kind of a reinterpretation. I think there is something to be said about, you know, there could always be more said about his character. I think I think the one thing I did get um, from a rewatch of this, and I was actually very surprised at actually how coherent it was for me, was the sense of how much he's been holding himself back. 
I think in the, we'll get to when we talk about Zod, but in that final fight with Zod and the Kryptonians, I mean, you really see echoes of of him really being able to let loose and really show an emotion. I think the emotion is obviously only one note. That emotion is, you know, I need to protect, you know, my mother. I need to protect those who are around me. It's coming from a place of anger and rage. But I think there is a through point in seeing what you see with Clark and in that in that battle and obviously all the the destruction at rots. You can see that he's finally he's finally comfortable using his powers because he's now faced with someone or a threat that's commiserate with his powers. Everything beforehand, he's just been holding himself back, holding himself back. And it, for me, it harkens back to, uh, I don't know if you guys have watched the great Justice League cartoon by Bruce Timm. Obviously, that 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 speech he gives Darkseid, right? I live in a world made of cardboard, right? And he literally just lets loose. And, you know, for me, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get to that later on, but I think that's the through point for me was, you know, I could see the development of, of Clark really letting his emotions loose. I think he's been, He's almost like the Hulk in a way in this movie. He's been so trying to contain it, right? He's been he's told by Jonathan and Martha, you need to contain it. They fear you. They fear you. And obviously the breaking point is when they threaten his family and he's obviously letting loose in that respect. And obviously it is a departure from how we see Superman. Superman's not the Hulk, right? And he's not this this God being that we should fear, right? But I think that is, I think that's what they're getting at is he's not there yet and he is scary. This Kryptonian is scary, no matter what his intentions may be, because he has such power, right? And I think if you don't buy into that fact, then I think obviously you're going to get that polarizing effect you'll have with this movie. Go ahead. I, I, for me, I think the thing that really brought together one, one of the character moments for for Clark, especially with all the nonlinear storytelling, was the moment where he's he meets Lois for the first time uh, after their their incident, you know, with the ship. And she's talking to him about, um, you know, let me tell your story. And he tells her the story ab- about Jonathan and, and what happened with the tornado. And she says to him, you know, I, he says, uh, maybe I'll just stop helping people. And she says, well, I, I feel like that's not an option for you. And... What I liked about the movie is that it had spent a lot of time showing us that it's not an option for Clark not to use his powers to help people. Those are some of the things that I really picked up. I felt like, and as I rewatch the film, I see more and more is is how layered they are with the storytelling. And it's subtle. It's not in your face. They're not slapping you upside the head with all of these things, but they're allowing the acting, they're allowing the subtlety of the characters and the storytelling to actually do that instead of just, they're showing you. They're not telling you. And we're so used to being told in movies instead of just shown. And I think that's one of the things that I really loved about, especially just this nonlinear storytelling. To me, Snyder was almost making an art house superhero film where the beauty of what the shots that you're seeing, the handheld camera work, and the way that they're telling the story is, is character driven. They're driving it through the character of Clark. And I just really responded to that because I'd rather have to think about the movie than and and watch it carefully than just be told what's happening uh, instead of having to watch and induce along with the character. And, and what I liked is that I felt like I was along for the journey with Clark. 
So everything he was experiencing from the flashbacks to where he was, I was along for the journey to watch him struggle through the decisions he was going to have to make, especially the decisions he was going to have to make at the end of the film. For me, this whole movie was almost like, what if you did Superman 2, but you hadn't had Superman 1? This That's what this movie kind of was, was like Superman 2 is where we start. And Superman, he, he, he's not had any practice. He hasn't had a fortress of, you know, like... Uh, this awesome power he hasn't been to space school for 12 years to teach him how to be superman and hone his powers or anything like that no these big badass guys walk into town and say hey we're taking over the joint and he's like well i can't let you do that you know so this is a very different um movie in general and i i like the way that they don't rely on just your knowledge of superman but they're Everything they're going to change in this film, they're going to show it to you and they're going to give it to you. And then um, they're, they're not going to make you feel like you had to have watched any other Supermans or read any other Supermans. They're just going to drop you into this universe and, and do their best to explain it all to you. In the same way they did with, like you said, Daniel, Batman Begins with Batman. They started it year one with Batman and built that character throughout that series specifically, but even just in that film too of how did this character go and become the person that we know um which is more normal i think in in uh at least batman animated movies um but i think one of the things that nolan has done best in his works and passed on to the man of steel team was that idea of you can't just create an icon and put that icon on on film you have to show how it becomes the icon because otherwise you're you're taking too much for granted and that's what they did with batman and i think that's what they do with uh superman in this film as well so i think the one thing the one scene that really informs the audience that you're dealing with a completely different approach to the superman mythos was when young clark after he saved the busload of children you know he was almost ashamed to have admitted that to to Jonathan and he goes what was I supposed to do was I supposed to let them all die and he said maybe and I thought that was a really powerful scene because the original 78 Glenn Ford would have taken that exact same scene and and the dialogue would have been written to the point of no you must save all of these people regardless of what would happen to you because that's why you're here you're here for a reason Jonathan Kent then in 1978 had all the answers. And that was that Superman. Jonathan Kent in Man of Steel didn't have any answers. And that's what creates this great, ambiguous, morally kind of fluid journey that Clark goes on because as well intended as Jonathan Kent wanted to be as a father, there is no way that he had the capability of not just infusing his moral fiber into Clark, but try to balance that with what Clark was capable of because you know as soon as Clark let go and as soon as he exacted his moral justice on something he did he did it with the power of a god how does Jonathan Kent resolve himself with something like that you know it's like you can't put that genie back in the bottle once it's uncorked so he had to he had to be really really hard on him and say like you know what we have to keep this under wraps or else once it's done it is done 
I'm not sure when that time is going to be, but I don't have any answers for you, Clark. You're going to have to find this out for yourself. And he didn't have enough time, obviously, because of what happened in the movie, the, the tornado scene. But even another 15, 20 years, I don't think Jonathan would have still had the time to, to, to craft Clark the way that he needed to in order for him to be safe. And that's this journey. That's what this movie really strikes accord with uh, for a modern audience. Well, I, think. I think one of the things that I really love about that scene is that they take the reality of what it would be like to be Martha and Jonathan. An alien crash lands in your, your farm and you raise it as your son and, and the reality of they, they had no idea if somebody was going to come and take Clark. Um, who would show up to take Clark? Uh, who, and how would they not be surprised? They, they take the reality of the world that we live in today and, and the fear that would drive you, but at the same time, uh, the love that Jonathan has for this boy that's not his son. And he says, you know, you have another father who called you by a different name, and he sent you here for a reason. And, and one of the things, though, that, you know, everybody points to that scene, well, maybe, but later Jonathan tells him, he says, you know, you have to decide what kind of man you want to be when you grow up, Clark. Whoever that man is, good character or bad, he's going to change the world. And Martha and Jonathan have done their best to raise Clark in a way of good character that will reflect when he's older. You know, I really think back to the proverb, you know, raise a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. And that's exactly what Martha and Jonathan are trying to do with Clark, especially a boy who has all the power of a god. And they don't even know the extent of his powers because Clark doesn't know he's Kryptonian when he's younger. He doesn't know any of those things. Uh, he has no idea what his capabilities are. And so until then, all that they can do as parents is instill in him what they can. What I loved in this film, and I think... Um, that Snyder does well is he asks the right questions of what would it really be like if this person existed today on our planet? What would that actually be like? And then tries to answer that question throughout the film. Uh, What would it be like to raise this person? What would it be like to be this person? And how would the world respond to this person? You know, um, a majority of people, uh, even Perry White realizes, they're not going to respond well. You know, so um, I, I think that, again, it, it just it's a movie that encapsulates what it would be to have Superman in the 21st century. And I think that's uh, that was definitely its goal. And, I, you know, whether it does it well or not is is it, up for ridiculous amounts of debate with the Internet. But we do have to, to go on. So I wanted to get to just the casting and the soundtrack because these are big parts of the film. Obviously, the original film had some amazing casting with, you know, Marlon Brando being uh, Jor-El and then having the soundtrack done by John Williams, the great Johnny Williams. Uh, And so Mm -hmm. what did you guys just think uh, quickly about uh, the cast and then what we got from Hans Zimmer as the soundtrack? I I mean, I loved Henry Cavill. I think he did a great job. Uh, I think that he walked in probably the, the biggest pair of shoes that there is when it comes to superheroes. I mean... You know, there there are so many different opinions about this, but I, what I liked about what Henry Cavill brought to the part was that he he always felt very grounded with what the Kents brought to him. You know, as 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 he was, you know, he just felt very authentic, 
you know, he wasn't, uh, I mean, it, he's a very handsome guy. He's well built. I mean, the scene when he came out of the water and he was like looking for clothes to put on, I mean, I think that men and women both just kind of just went slack jawed at that moment. We're just like, okay, that's pretty much Superman right there. But he also did very well with the Clark character and not in the, the nerdy kind of uh, mild mannered, meekish, geekish type of persona that, that the great Christopher Grieve brought to Clark. He, he's, he's this kind of this, this Clark that doesn't understand it and whatever it is, his power, his place, his potential, his history, his future. He just doesn't, he's, he's growing. And I think Cavill does a really good job with being kind of ambiguous about it all. There's, he always looks like he has just a little bit of a secret he wants to leak out every once in a while. He has this little bit of a grim, uh, of a smirk when he talks to Lois. And I think it's just because, man, I want to tell you so much, but I just can't yet. I don't have that. He goes, I got to wait for that moment. But uh, no, I, th- I think he was great. Amy Adams is fantastic. She, she's always fantastic in almost every role that she she uh, she takes. Um, but I got to take a moment and just say that there's there are few soundtracks for me that will ever top John Williams' original 1978 Superman score. It's far too iconic for me to leave behind. That being said, I think that Hans Zimmer did a great job with the music, and it really set the tone for a modern Superman. I think if you approach the question in terms of in terms of the soundtrack of it's one of those things where you can never replace something you can only you can only step in and kind of fill those shoes and i think you know hans zimmer you know i think does the best job of of anyone that can follow in, in john williams john williams is iconic because it's a superman of a different of a different era and it's always going to be probably one of the most preeminent definitions of of superman but obviously Hans Zimmer was was trying to to compose a score for a different type of film. I think it hit all the right beats. Um, in terms of casting, I think I think the main casting was was, was great. Um, but I just wanted to to specifically point out Hilo from Battlestar Galactica was there. Gaeta from Battlestar Galactica was there. That's at least right. for me, obviously they were there for like very briefly. But for me, I was like, yes. They're even in similar roles. Like Gate is in like in the radar. He's in like the computer area. I think you know. I, I for me, I was like, yes, that's totally such a shout out for me. So I enjoyed that. And on Smallville, Gata played Doctor Emil Hammond, and so oh, really? it was oh. interesting to have him be playing one of the Northcom soldiers uh, who has been liaisoning with Doctor Emil Hammond. Yeah. So great little bit of uh, fun, you know fan inside joke basically if you knew smallville yeah yeah i mean uh, i i i only echo, uh, echo the sentiments here the this soundtrack is amazing um of course like we mentioned comparing it to john williams uh, i think that's actually an interesting exercise to compare the tone of the john williams theme to the tone of the man of steel theme and i kind of think there's like a microcosm of why so many people have problems uh why there's a lot of uh, a lot of the Superman fan base that has an issue. I think it, tonally it's so different. Uh, it kind of is. It represents kind of how how different Man of Steel is than the Superman that we're used to. Um, so I think that's interesting in that way because I had a, I just after watching Man of Steel, I had I'd seen a you know a trailer for for the old Superman film and it was just like, oh you know it's so upbeat and happy and 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 you know positive and stuff. And it's it's so different. It's just so different. And like you said, it's just a Superman for a different age. 
Um, and the same thing with the act, uh, the acting. Ninety-five uh, percent of uh, of the acting is of of who they who they picked is great. Uh, can we mention that they changed Jimmy Olsen to a girl? Like, what is that about? Like, why? <laughs> I mean, I'm okay with it. I don't have a problem with it. I'm just, it's it's something nobody ever talks about. And I'm like, that's fine. She can be Jenny Olsen. That doesn't bother me. But nobody ever mentions it. I feel like. Yeah, that was one of the things that I was going to mention that I do like about the film, the fact that Perry White is played by the amazing Lawrence Fishburne, and I think he brings such a gravitas to that role because it's small here, and it'll hopefully grow as as he continues to be in the films. Um, But I think that they picked a really great person who immediately came in with a gravitas that you just respected. And then I thought that the relationship that he has with uh, Lois Lane and, and Amy Adams uh, was really fantastic, just really spot on. And the fact that they changed it to a, a Jenny Olsen, I thought was was great as well, because, you know, that's not a character to me that's you can't touch that character. You know, you, you can make that change. You can add another female character in there that hopefully down the road they will use a little bit more to kind of mean something. And that would be great as well. You know, so you have more female representation in the film and, and uh, you had what I loved with, especially with Perry white, you gave an amazing actor, but you, you gave it to a minority and uh, we need it. We need more of that. You know, Norm and Will, I know you both are fans of, of that idea, of, especially with having more Asian Americans in films too. So I would love to, to see that kind of stuff continue where you can do it. You know, uh, I think it, it worked out beautifully. And I think the same for the rest of the casting in general. To me, Henry Cavill came on the screen and, and I was reading, again, the Making of book today and they were talking about casting a British you know, person as the character. But they felt like he contained all of the things that it meant to be Superman. So it didn't matter where he'd come from he just had what it took to be Superman, especially when he put on the suit and everything. Even when he was out of the suit, you still kind of felt that character just kind of leaking out of him. And so I, I loved that. And I, I think he did a great job. Same thing with uh, Norm. I know that we've talked before and you didn't love Russell Crowe in this film, but I think they chose, a, a, again, a character where you immediately need to have gravitas to the role because it's not a huge role but you need to to be able to kind of pull the, the the audience in. Okay, this person is important. Why is it important? Well, one, it's Russell Crowe. And we always listen to Russell Crowe when he's on screen because he's played Gladiator and all these other things. So, you know. But that's the Russell Crowe I wanted. Oh, you wanted Gladiator? I wanted. Well. Praetorian! Yeah. Are you entertained? You know, he wasn't on my top list because he. I'm not going to go into how he portrayed Javert in Les Mis, one of my Ugh, all-time favorite Let's not talk about but, Les Mis. Yeah. So, but I wanted, it's so hard, again, it's so hard for, for me to have separated myself from the Jor-El that, that I grew up with. That was Marlon Brando. And it's, it's Marlon Brando. And even though you have not been raised this you know? time, you will be seen as one. Exactly. Is it really? It, I mean, was it You're really amazing? amazing? Come on, yeah. let's be fair and objective. I don't... The very at the very beginning scene when he did the uh, when he did the you know that scene was pretty impressive, you know. But just by comparison, um, I wanted I wanted a better Russell Crowe. I wanted the master and commander Russell Crowe. You know, I wanted that one Russell Crowe word like you you really did want to like pay attention to every single thing that he said on screen, and I felt that I got serviceable Russell Crowe 
in the Jor-El, in the Jor-El character, which, which is a very, obviously a pivotal character for the beginning and setting the tone of the movie. Because I think that um, Michael Sheehan uh, as Zod, I think he just stole the show. Every single scene that he was in. Against I will find him! Right? It's, yeah, the and veins the, then, popping out on the side of his neck in that scene were just awesome. I'd, I'd give them an Oscar. He was so into it. And I felt that Russell Crowe's like, thanks for involving me in the movie. I'll do my best. But, you know, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I I can feel just a ton of, of listeners out there just wanting to take yeah, my head off. No, right I, now, I think that's one of those things. You know, if, if it didn't if it didn't work for you, that it this is one of those wonderful parts of film where it is it is very subjective to how you respond to to a character. And I, you know, if somebody has a well-reasoned idea of why it doesn't work for them, I, I'm not going to fault them for it, you know. So, but I I don't remember the actress's name who played Faura, but I'm glad Faura, she was in the movie. Yeah, she was awesome. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> She's yeah, she is Lots fantastic. Of Bring her oh, back. Too bad she can't. Yeah. A potential yeah, Wonder Woman. I hey, think, I think whatever. See, <laughs> Let's bring her. You see those elements of. <laughs> I, mean, I hope. I mean, I don't want to go on, on, a, on too big of a tangent, but her fight scene—you could just see the fluidity. I hope that's going to be translated when Wonder Woman is actually given her first big screen oh, debut. That would be because great. That yeah. fight scene was incredible, and it just shows just how out of the le- how of you know how much they're out of the league of, of humans. Like they're just so beyond them. That it's, it's, it gives me hope for the Flash film. It does. Let me just yeah, put it exactly. that way, because to me, that's what super speed is supposed to look like. You know? I love that. Um, that I just, yeah, <laughs> it's fantastic. Okay, uh, well, we talked a little bit about, but I wanted to just kind of dive into what you thought of Lois, because she is obviously the other major character here, and just kind of the portrayal of the military, because they actually play a huge part in this film, and... Normally, when we get a military and a superhero film like this, they tend to be the bad guys and the jackasses uh, and the asshats that you just can't stand. But I thought that this was a very different type of portrayal. So what did you guys kind of think about those two elements for this film? You know, I, I rewatching this film, I was really surprised they didn't dip into the general lane well. I thought that they would have. You would think that they would at that point. Uh, but they didn't. You would. I mean, it would. It kind of would be. It would be an interesting kind of uh, dramatic experience at that point. That maybe, maybe General Lane is like super protective of Lois and and all of this. But uh, we don't get that. Uh, but that's okay. But I actually uh, even up until the last scene, which um, is kind of jarring from the scene before it, but is a great scene on its own. When Clark is like, well, Superman, Superman at that point is like, hey, no tabs on me, buddy. And, uh, you know, it's, it, 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 it's, it is very, I think, very Superman-esque. It's very, you know, he respects the military. He, he wants to work with people, and he wants to work with, with the government, kind of. And, uh, you know, it's, I, it, it was actually something I didn't actually think about until you put it in your notes, Matthew, but... Now that I watch rewatch the movie and I see it, and it's like, yeah, it's like we have that whole kind of subplot, if you want to call it that, with Feor and yeah, I can't Colonel Hardy. Oh, is Hardy? that his name? Yeah, Colonel I Hardy. can't remember. Colonel and it Hardy. was really, I actually really liked that. That little like he pulls out a knife on this Kryptonian, and he's like super badass, and you're like, all right, this guy's cool. I'm I'm okay with this guy for sure. Yeah, I, I think I think um, for detractors of Man of Steel that that said that you know there wasn't any type of 
that it was all just bashing and punching. I think this movie really lent itself towards rewatching because I was able to discover they really he really coordinated with the military when they were going after Zod's ship, uh, the colony ship, and they're going after the world engine. They literally couldn't do it if they didn't work together. And I think I think that kind of gets short shrift. I think Matthew, your point is is really uh, is really valid in the sense that the military was a partner, maybe not equal in the sense that they don't have Superman's strength, but they were a valid partner in terms of making this plan work. That after Clark took out uh, the World Engine over the Indian Ocean, that they needed the military to drop you know the, his spaceship onto Zod's ship to create the singularity and essentially basically send everyone back into the phantom zone. I think a lot of people don't give that enough credit. The fact that this plan, it had to, it had to have the military play such a, a crucial role in it. And I think, you know, I think later on when we, when we discuss Zod and, and the whole, and the killing thing, I think people don't give enough credit that Zod, I think was supposed to be there. Zod, Zod was supposed to be sent back into the Phantom Zone. That was the first plan. It wasn't just Superman was killing people and he has no moral code. The plan was to send them back. It just happened that Zod stole the the ship, the scout ship that was there, and kind of wasn't there when they were expecting to to set that trap. But I think this movie really deserves rewatching because you know that partnership is it doesn't get enough credit in my opinion. To go back to the original point about. Um about how strong Lois is in this movie. I mean, they really did cast really well. I mean, Amy Adams always brings either a, a quiet strength or or an, um, and just a, an outwardly strength to every role that she plays. She brings such subtlety to uh, all the dialogue, and, and she just can do it with a, a glance, a wink, a smirk. You know, uh, she is just a fan. I mean, she is an Academy Award-winning actress, uh, she, I think she brings a great modernism to Lois. You know, she's not, you know, hanging from a, an elevator car waiting for Superman to save her. You know, she is very much uh, capable of taking everything into her own hands and taking on the responsibility of her actions and, and getting herself out of situations. And, and I think it's just neat to see that because they did set the tone with that a little bit in Smallville, but not for, you know, a fully, uh, a fully adult um, Lois, that uh, Lois character that you see on the screen, so it's hard to say anything specifically because she's just so good at at everything that she does in the movie. You know, it's, she's very believable. She's a Pulitzer Prize winning. Still has a little bit of difficulty with her spelling, but that's oh. kind of like just that Lois line though was a little so too on the nose. I'm a Pulitzer Prize you know? <laughs> journalist. I was just like, that's that's like a trailer <laughs> line. That's like a line that's just yeah. totally <laughs> set up for like then act like one, which is like yes, just total converse. Those those lines it's, are totally teed of, up. Um, you know what I mean, but. I get what you're saying. Yeah. It's shades of respecting the uh, like what Margot Kidder brought to the uh, to the role back in the, the original movies. So I was kind of like waiting for that to get dropped, you know, just because it's it's Lois's calling card. Well, and the other thing that I really just love about Lois in this film is that she is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, which means she's gonna figure out who Superman is. She's not an idiot. Just because he's gonna put on some glasses later on doesn't mean she's not gonna know who he is. She's not gonna be able to figure it out. That's what makes her so good, and that's what makes her, for me in this film, a great companion for Clark. And she's not always the damsel in distress in this film. She's the one who, you know, Jorel tells the plan to. She helps enact that plan, like we were talking about with the military. You know, she's integral to the film. She's not just the eye candy. 
in fact, reading the the making of book, somebody said in it, you know, he might save her physically, but she saves him emotionally. And so that those two ways of being saved um, mean as much to as anybody could have and, and is exactly what that person needs. Obviously, Lois is falling. Superman saves her. But she gives him something that he hasn't really gotten anywhere else besides his parents, which is acceptance. I think that that's a really, really cool thing. And, you know, having the military not be idiots in the film or being the jerks to me meant a lot. You know, I'm married to somebody who is in the military, and I get tired of them being the bad guys all the time. And it doesn't really make sense. Um, And it made for a great storyline of this whole thing we'll get into just a little bit later about, you know, Superman being uncontrollable by anyone on this planet at this point. Nobody knows how to control him. And yet that doesn't mean that he's their enemy and he wants to work with them, you know. So I think it made for a great storyline to to really move forward too into Batman v Superman, you know, uh, where we'll go next and, and all of that. So I wanted to, to dive into um, something that a lot of people really didn't like about the film and it was the way that Jonathan Kent died. A lot of people had a problem with this. They, they didn't feel like it worked. They felt like he was dumb or stupid or any of those things. They just felt like this was not the way to have this happen. Uh, I think it's totally and completely useless i don't i don't understand it i don't understand why they chose to do it that way i don't see uh to me it makes literally zero sense especially in the way the scene is written right uh if fine i mean if you if you're trying to make an interesting point with jonathan kent's death which is what they were trying to do which i think they failed miserably at um then then make it a scene that you could there are no other outcomes right uh, but this scene is written in such a way like uh, if you uh, if you guys remember, you know uh, Jonathan Kent was carrying a kid, I think, and ha- and 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 Clark was like, "Hey, I'll go get the dog. I'll go get the dog because there's literally no chance I'll die or anything bad will happen. There's nothing negative could happen from this situation." And uh, Jonathan's like, "No, no, no. I'll do it because I'm an older gentleman who can get killed from a tornado, and I'll just go take care of it." It, 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 it just it's reeks of poor writing to me, and and uh, also uh, Jonathan Kent's traditional way of dying, which is a, a usually a heart attack, right? I think is a super important lesson for Clark in the fact that he actually can't control everything. Um, Jonathan Kent, the two times that we see him in this film, completely discourage Clark from being Kal-el, from being Superman, from where he says. Well, maybe you should have let those kids die, or maybe you should let me die. I don't know. I just, I just don't get. I get what maybe people think that they were going for, but to me, it just doesn't. I, I, it's one of the most frustrating. And I'm sorry if you guys, you can disagree with me totally. I'm okay with that. But it's just like the so frustrating to me. Like I just don't get it. It's um one of the, my all time favorite scenes, uh, in the original movie and in probably in any movie was the way that. Uh, the way that Clark addressed uh, Jonathan's death in, in the original movie, because what he said was, with all the things that I can do and all of my powers, I couldn't even save him. I felt that that actually was really well translated in this scene because it's the exact same line interpreted on Jonathan's side. Not on Clark's side, but on Jonathan's side. It's like, with all the things that Clark can do and all of his powers, 
you can't save me now because you have to save what you're going to reveal for later. This isn't worth it. I'm not worth it. I'm not worth you revealing yourself and endangering yourself now. You're not ready. And that's the thing is like, I don't know if Jonathan ever felt he would be ready, but at the, at the decision now, I felt that the way that he, you know, he, he hurt himself. He couldn't escape the car. That was a little clunky for me. But what I got out of that scene was that, stop, Clark, just stop. You can't save me. You have to save yourself for something greater. And, and that's kind of like, but the, the, the struggle for Clark is what? What could be greater than me saving my own father? It's like, I'm not your father. You know, you were sent here for a reason. It wasn't to save me. You know, I've done my best with you. I don't think I can do any better with you. So it's okay if, if you let me go. I, I've, I've, you know, I saved your mom. I saved the dog. I saved some people. That's me being a human. You're something greater than this. You're something greater than all of this scene that's going on right now. I don't know what it is, but you're going to have to find out. And maybe there was some type of lesson that he was trying to teach him at this time, this type of self-sacrifice. Maybe it didn't get translated as well as the writers would have liked, but I think at the core of the scene, it's that this is what sacrifice is. This is what I'm trying to teach you. Make the right decision at the right time because you only really have one chance of, of doing this grand deed. And that, I think that one chance later on at the end was what happened when he made that decision for Zod. This was his one chance to make that great decision, and then he chose his path. That's, that's the way I interpret the scene. I think for me, you know, if we're using that touchstone of, of Jonathan's, you know, original death of the, of the heart attack scene, it, it's basically, you know, for all my powers, I can't stop this. And I think if you look at this scene in Man of Steel from the perspective of he could have stopped this. So I think that's what makes it that much more agonizing for him. And that's what ultimately makes this scene work for him because it, for me, it acts as a thorough, it acts as a point of, of connection through the rest of the movie in terms of in the original Donner film, he literally couldn't have stopped it even if he wanted to. But in Man of Steel, he didn't do it and he could have. So it, there's there's that, it's a, it's a reinterpretation of the, the, I guess, powerlessness. But in the original movie, it's powerlessness literally because he can't stop a heart attack. But in this movie, it's powerlessness because of his own internal tension, his, his own internal struggle him listening to his father and knowing that he easily so could have done that. He, he could have saved him. But the fact that he didn't do it, I think, is probably going to be, for me, I was able to see that emotional connection to the rest of the movie in terms of when he saw that Zod was threatening Martha, right? That, she, that he was throwing her around, was, was looming over her. I think all of that anger, all that guilt, essentially, I think Clark was was going through the film with so much guilt, the fact that he could have saved him, and the fact that, for me, that scene when when Clark is going and just charging at Zod, pushes him through that grain silo, pushes him into Smallville, and just punching him through, you know, that you know that, that scene in the cornfield. I think, for me, I was able to connect the fact that he is really unleashing all of his guilt, his pent-up guilt, and his pent-up passion, saying that, I didn't save my father when I could have, and now you're threatening my mother, like, I am going to let loose all of this pent-up emotion. And I think for me, being able to tie those two, I think was able for me to understand what they're trying to do with that scene. I get, 
I get the argument about how it could be contrived. I get the argument about, hey, Clark was originally supposed to go for it, but Jonathan stopped him. And then, coincidentally, he also hurts his leg. I understand how people can see that and say, oh, man, they're just really trying to set up some sort of pathos, right? Like, by, by sacrificing Jonathan, it's going to be, quote, unquote, a, ch- a cheap way to establish that that pathos, right, where it wasn't really earned. For me, I think it was earned through the rest of the film, but I think it's this is probably, next to Zod's death itself, is probably going to be one of the most polarizing and, you know, divisive points of this movie. And it, it's really up to, to, to how you interpret it. I think there's a bunch of things. I think that it had already been set up earlier in the movie, how Jonathan was going to react here. He he doesn't believe it's time for everybody to know who his son is. And the moment that he saves Jonathan or the dog, either one, everybody's going to know who Clark is in Smallville. And that's not going to stay hidden. And it's not time for Clark to reveal himself to the world yet. The other thing that I I've, I realized about this scene is that Jonathan is thinking about this as a father and as a husband because there's a tornado coming and he sends his indestructible son to protect his wife. And that's how Jonathan is thinking about this. It's not just that Clark can save him, but it's also that he can save his wife and make sure she's still living. So there's a lot more going on in this scene, I think, than people give it credit for. And I think Jonathan, it does become a lesson to Clark, but it's a little bit different than the one in the in the Donner film because this one, Clark is, is learning from his father that there are times to act and there are times not to act. And when to use your power and when not to use your power. Um, and he's been instilling this in Clark for a long time and he re- he believed that there would be there would come a time when Clark could reveal himself to the world and it would be better for Clark that people would be willing to accept him because of what he can do and they would see him more in that savior light than be afraid of him and I think that's where this film is answering again that question of what happens if somebody like this shows up if somebody like this shows up when a comet's about to hit our planet or another godlike person comes down and starts trying to take over uh, and they stop them, we're probably going to be more okay with that person, you know? So I, I think, again, it's really been answering those questions. And I, I just completely disagree with you, Daniel. I do not think this scene is useless and I don't think it has no point. I think it has every point because I think it's teaching Clark a lot of different lessons all at one time. One of the most beautiful that I just pulled out of it was this is a husband protecting his wife and his son. And that's what it means to be human is to protect others. And he's instilling that in his son, even if it costs him his death. He's willing to die for his beliefs. I think that's so important for Clark to see in his father, that his father was willing to die for what he believed in. And Clark even says that to to Lois. He says, my father was willing to die for what he believed in. And that was me. And how important is that going to be when you start talking about the the kind of messianess of of Clark later on when Jarrell says you can save them you can save them all and i i think that for all that people 
talk about with this film, I think that this is just a misunderstood scene because it wasn't the same as what they expected from the comics or the Donner film where either the comics, you know, his parents are already dead or, you know, his, his dad has died. And I think it's asking a lot more of the audience to really think through all that's going on and not just the surface, because I think there's so much happening here. And I think it's great because, you know, Perry White and Jonathan really agree because they don't think that the world will handle it well if a person like this shows up really at the wrong time. Um, And that's something that Jonathan says earlier. He says to him, all these changes you're going through, one day day you're going to think of them as a blessing. And when that day comes, you're going to have to make a choice, a choice whether to stand proud in front of the human race or not. And Zod comes and... The choice that Clark makes is to stand with humanity and not with Krypton. Uh, And he stands proudly in front of the human race by surrendering to them (laughs) and saying, Mm -hmm. do with me what you will. Uh, Almost, well, it's exactly the way Jesus (laughs) surrenders and basically does the same thing. So, uh, yeah, I I think it's, it's a scene that a lot of people haven't liked, but I always thought, even from the beginning, it worked. And the more times I've seen it, the more layers I've seen it, and the more I've really liked it. So, Zod's death, another big scene that people have really disliked. Um, in fact, you mentioned, Will, that the plan was to have, you know, obviously Zod get taken up into the Phantom Zone, along with the rest of the Kryptonians. And that was actually the original plan in the script as well. And Zack Snyder brought that idea to Christopher Nolan. Says, I, I think I think we need to have Clark kill Zod. And Nolan didn't really like that idea at the beginning. And the more they talked about it, the more they found a way that they, they felt like they could make it work. Um... And again, this being an origin story, they wanted to give a reality to the reason of why Superman becomes the person he becomes instead of just automatically assuming that, well, Superman has a rule that he doesn't kill. Well, why? They were giving us a reason. Why does Superman not kill? Well, because he has before and he realized this is this is not the way. But I, I just, I love that, again, we're watching a character develop instead of giving us the character as the full-fledged icon right from the beginning with no reason for why that's the case. Just, this is the way Superman is, so this is the way Superman is. But, that again, too, we're talking about reinterpreting Superman for a modern audience. Well, show, don't tell. Show. Show me why Superman is this way. So what do you guys think? You know, and I'm... Um... There's there's always a point in a new origin story where you make the turn, where a hero makes the turn, and that becomes kind of like the the point where his character is truly forged. And in this interpretation of Superman, it was this scene. I think that this is actually the most important scene in the movie because this is where the storytellers inform the audience that this is a true origin story. This is where Superman chooses to go differently 
in the future when it comes to protecting humanity, but also choosing humanity. He had no way out. Clark had no prior experience to handling this situation in the history of his ever life, ever. He's standing there making, and this is what Jonathan Kent was making, uh, making a point about, where he's like, this is their moment. This is the moment that you have to choose whether you're going to stand with humanity or not. Because, like he said, Krypton had its chance. And this is Earth. You have to let these people have their right to life. I was sent here for a reason. And this pivotal moment of him taking this life shows him that I have chosen this new place as my, as my home. I've chosen this race as my family. But at the same time, I have personally ended the life of one of my own countrymen to do that. That makes me now stand with this side versus this side. He chose to do this versus that. That type of decision is, again, very polarizing to the audience because this isn't the Superman that they knew. All, and the Superman that they knew was that you know, he stands for truth, he stands for justice, he stands for the American way. He'll always find a way to, to get out of this type of a situation. But that's not this time. That's not this story. And for all of you listening out there, during Superman 2, what do you think happened to the Phantom Zone criminals at the end of the movie? Do you think they just miraculously disappeared after that fight? No, he wrapped he them in a cellophane nest, and then they fell down that immeasurably large hole that they never returned from, so he killed them. I mean, metaphoric as that may be, there there is that fact that he actually did do that. I mean, it wasn't nearly as graphic as what he did to General Zod in this movie, but... The point is, is that he chose to protect humanity and to become their champion in a way. He chose this new home. And, in, and, Zod, and Zod basically gave him no way out. He's like, it's either you're with me or you're against me. Crack. I'm against you. Sorry. You know, this is my choice as a man. This is the way that my dad raised me. He told me, he told me I was going to have this moment and it happened. And I'm sorry if the fans that d- didn't really get that because... That's this Superman. This is the Superman for this audience. And uh, I think that the Superman of old and the Superman of new, I think they, they both have great strengths and weaknesses. And this, in my opinion, was a strength for this movie. I, I think when I first heard about the scene, I think my friend, who's a huge Superman fan, told me, spoiled me with a text saying, you know, he kills Zod. And, you know, for me, you know, I don't mind. You son of a! You ruined the film. Spoiler. <laughs> you know that's. I think most people would have that reaction, like, "Oh man, you ruined this movie for me." For me, like, I, it doesn't really bother me that much. But obviously, I came into the movie knowing that I had trepidation. I said, "Man, I don't like hearing that." Obviously, I have reservations about how they're going to sell that, right? And when I saw that scene initially in the theater, I really, when I when I saw it, and I walked away from it. I was able to buy into it because of the circumstance in which, you know, the context in which it's been set up. You know, the initial plan wasn't to kill Zod. There was going to be the other way, right? The Phantom Zone, right? Every other Kryptonian, Feyora, you know, Namil, they were gone. Through sheer circumstance, he didn't uh, he didn't get put into that Phantom Zone. And he is only getting more powerful, right? You can see it in that scene where he takes off that armor. He's starting to float. You can see him gaining that power. And then he he further punctuates that point by saying, I'm going to make them pay. You know, before that, you know, he essentially 
lost everything when that codex was destroyed when the ship got destroyed when he's you know holding the ashes of the ship you've essentially turned zod into you know almost like a, a rabid animal he has a death wish saying that at this point he has literally nothing left to live for and he's getting more powerful and you know i was watching that scene trying trying to decipher you know are they going to set up the context where you know you can sell that conflict and i think you know i've watched it and you know when they're tumbling through and they're crashing into that and into that train station i think that's the first moment where clark actually has the upper hand because at every point up to that you know he is either reacting or he's getting beaten around by zod zod has he's a trained warrior and clark essentially learned how to fly the day before really and the only way clark has been able to keep up with zod at this point was that he's had he's been on earth for longer he's had that uh he's had that advantage but the longer he waits that advantage will be negated because zod is getting more powerful and he has that warrior experience and i think that scene i watched it very carefully when he they're tumbling in and and clark smacks zod down i think that's the first time really and he hasn't been that hold that's the first time that clark is really able to restrain zod and essentially zod makes that he's taunting clark by saying you know what if you really care about them that much save them right now he's daring him he's daring him to kill him right and i think understanding zod's death in that context makes a whole lot of sense um but I think a lot of people can totally have missed that scene in terms of just saying, you know, he literally just murdered him, just killed him. There was there was no context to that. There was he could have flown away. Why didn't he move his head a couple inches? Why didn't he put him in the phantom zone? I think if you rewatch the context of that scene, you can understand the, the choice that he was making. And, and for me, it worked, even despite me knowing in advance that this was happening and that I was really very fearful of how they're going to play that scene and for me it actually ended up beating my expectations um yeah in the same way that the the jonathan kent death scene doesn't make sense to me this doesn't it's it's not like okay i will admit that i have biases uh towards a certain superman narrative and i'm totally okay with that that's fine uh and i'm okay with seeing different interpretations but the fact is that both of these scenes are written really poorly uh first of all uh, and I just wanted to mention, Matthew, if Jonathan Kent really cared about his wife and his son, he would have never sent them to an underpass in a tornado. Just saying, that's actually a death trap. You should never, ever do that in that situation. Uh, it's, it's, you're, you're probably going to end up dead. But no, but in this, in this particular scene, uh, I don't feel like we... we, we it's so in, disingenuous to, for Clark to be so concerned about these random four people that happened to be in this train station at the time. If it was like somehow Zod was just like going after maybe his mom or going after Lois the whole time and was like, I'm going to kill the people you care about, that makes sense to me. And maybe, again, I wouldn't agree with what, maybe what he did, but I can see it's a different storytelling structure. But everything we've learned about this Clark from the scene where his father tells him, maybe you shouldn't save this busload of kids up until the Smallville, in, the Smallville fight scene and the Metropolis fight scene, where he is clearly not interested. Uh, not, not, not interested. That's, I think that's unfair. But he's clearly not super concerned with any um, kind of outside casualties uh, at that point. Uh, that why, like, 
why would he care so much at that point about this this these people that he doesn't know that he would kill them now i mean i guess it's i guess it's fair to point out we don't know enough about clark to say that he would or wouldn't kill anybody under any circumstances and i think that would be fair to say actually um but presumably it, it crossing that line is a pretty big line for anybody and to me it's just it's disingenuous to when he's throwing i mean he and as much as you say that like he's trying to avoid ca- i don't i just don't see that in he's not trying to avoid killing anybody in this scenario he's throwing zod through buildings just as much as he's being thrown through buildings but there are probably hundreds of people being killed and then all of a sudden it's this 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 family in the train station that makes him reevaluate all of his morals that he's learned up to that point and he's totally okay with with snapping some guy's neck I, I, I just, I'm not. I, I'm not willing. I, I can accept it under certain circumstances, but it's just not written well. It's just to me, it's completely disingenuous. Well, I am going to show you how it is written well, because it's all throughout the movie, uh, and it starts in Krypton, uh, where everyone has been genetically engineered to be a certain way, and Zod even says it when. He is standing in front of Clark and he says, you have taken everything from me uh, and I have nothing left. Zod has no choice. He has no free will to choose who he will be or change. He is engineered to be a certain way and that is to protect Krypton at all costs. And now that that's gone, he is going to do everything he can to destroy all that Clark loves and all that Clark cares about. And so they've already been kind of telling you that's one of the things that makes Clark special from the beginning as a Kryptonian is that he is different. He has free choice. He hasn't been engineered to be a certain way, whereas everybody else has been. And so when it comes down to this scene, Clark does have a choice. He, it's it's humanity or it's letting Zod live and doesn't have a fortress. He doesn't have access to the Phantom Zone anymore. Uh, because both of the ships are gone. He doesn't have anywhere to keep Zod, and he doesn't really know of any other way of of getting rid of him. Zod has made it clear that he is going to kill or destroy as much as possible. I think that the the destruction and the fight scene is is part of that, that um, Clark is, is very aware of what's happening around him, and if this fight keeps going on, yeah, there are going to be many more casualties that's one of the things that i really liked about this movie is that the 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 level of destruction when two gods fight this is what it looks like and it's not it's not comic booky you know it's real people are gonna die Uh, and i think that's on clark's mind the whole time and throughout the entire film clark has been saving everyone he can and 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 whether it's with the oil derrick, where it's whether it's the kids in the bus. I mean, we've watched Clark spend his life secretly trying to save everybody he can around him. And so it's built into his character from the beginning. Like he's even having the argument with his dad in the 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 car before they stop about the tornado that he wants to do something more. And so I I, I when you say that it's not well written I feel like you're just not paying attention to the movie because it's written all over the film so that by the time you get to the end and Clark makes this decision, 
I know all the reasons why Clark is making this decision. Um, put on top of that, that, I think Will makes a really great point, is that this is Superman's first freaking day on the job. And he has no idea of his own powers and their limitations. So he really doesn't understand what Zods are going to be either. And therefore, if if he lets Zod live, number one, he doesn't have anywhere to keep him. And number two, he has no idea what he's going to be capable of because he himself doesn't know what he's capable of as Superman, as a Kryptonian on this planet, figuring out his powers and that's the other thing that I love about the film is they they have written it in a way so that when you get to this point, it makes complete sense why he he has he chooses humanity. And yeah, it's it's the family that's sitting there. But that's the only scene where they're really standing still. The rest of the movie they're fighting. And like Will said, Superman almost never has the upper hand in the film uh, in that fight. Um, he's he's getting his ass kicked majority of the time. Um, and now that he has this upper hand, he doesn't know if he's going to have it again. And the choice is he, he chooses humanity. And I think it makes complete sense. And again, I think this leads us on the whole conversation of this is a super origins movie. This is an origin film. We are not talking about the icon of Superman because this film isn't called Superman. This film is called Man of Steel. And it's called that for a reason. This movie isn't about Superman. This is about Clark becoming Superman. And that's a much different story. It's not something that we've seen on film before. And I've got to applaud Zack Snyder and Christopher Nolan for finally actually allowing us to journey with Superman to see it happen. It's the thing I hate the most about the Donner film. Superman goes away for 12 years into space school. We never see him and then out pops this like fully formed superman well but i i didn't get to see any of the what he learned why he's doing this like he just comes out like this and and as a as an audience member in a in a modern sense but even just as a story lover that's not good story anymore you know i want to know the motivations behind the character the why the how and this movie again it doesn't tell me it shows me the whole movie is it just it showing me and and letting me see, letting me be on the journey with Clark to to become a Superman, so that when he's at the very last scene with Swanwick, he is Superman at that point. This movie is the birth of Superman, uh, and it's the birthing process. So it's it's not until the very end when he finally lets out that scream after killing Zod that that Superman has has fully been born. And so what happens all the way up to that point, it it's not a Superman movie. It's a Clark movie. It's Man of Steel. Superman is born the moment after Zod died. And that's what I love about this film. That's what I think is so brilliant about this film is I'm getting to see the birth of Superman uh, and the why of the character, not just the how, but the why. I think, I think the interesting thing I think we talked about before the show about referencing how this is going to tie into Batman versus Superman. I think if you look at this movie as part of a, of a larger narrative, it has the potential to really address the criticisms that's been on this movie in the second film. 
And you know, people could say that's hindsight or 2020. I think from what I've read about the pre-production notes and kind of where they were going with this film, I think they were already intending to go that way. But the way they're setting up Superman, the way I think the criticism that Daniel is bringing up and a lot of other people brought up in terms of the collateral damage, the fact that he seems to be indifferent, the fact that this, the level of of damage that has been wrought on Earth, I think is the greatest that's ever been portrayed in a comic book movie, far greater than Loki in the, in the Avengers and far greater than any other um, comic book movie. This was a world-ending threat that he had to face on day one on with Kryptonians that were essentially his equal, and there were four of them, right? And I think that type of threat, the fact that, you know, the the atmosphere in which he's operating is one is one of paranoia. I think the next movie has the potential to really address almost all the criticisms that's been um, levied at this movie, and it has the potential to really to argue its point, to really demonstrate the growth. Now, obviously, we don't know what's going to happen. Obviously, that movie may not address those concerns uh, to everyone's satisfactions, but it, but it has that ability to do that. And I think, for me, it's making me more excited about Batman versus Superman than I thought I would have initially because it really has the ability to to introduce, I think, Batman in a way that is going to be relevant to, to, to Clark. I think that's why this movie is, you know, if you look at that Rotten Tomato score, it's like literally down the middle it's like 55 percent like the critical um consensus is really split it's almost 50 50 it's either you buy into the premise or you don't and it's it's really tough to argue either way because if you don't if you don't concede the fact that he wouldn't why wouldn't he be saving everyone he could why wouldn't he be throwing the fight against zod you know to save that that family under the bridge that's collapsing or to save them from the rubble if you don't if you don't buy into the fact that he wouldn't be jump into that conclusion automatically then it's going to be tough to kind of buy into the entire movie and i think that's why the second movie and i think the larger dc cinematic universe is going to be so critical because it it has the potential to really make man of steel better i think and and for audiences to maybe perhaps revisit and give it another another look they didn't have but it may not do that either so it's going to be very interesting to see I mean, what I loved about this movie, and I think that I think that I can appreciate it from from the standpoint of of seeing a completely new Superman story. Because I was telling Matthew this earlier, my watermark for a superhero movie was Superman nineteen seventy eight, and then it was just recently, by a small margin, eclipsed by Captain America: Winter Soldier. Because what I what I loved about these movies is that they they brought about the best ideals of these heroes when they told the stories at, at that time for that audience for man of steel. And I hate to admit this on the six Oh two, because um, you know, we're such fans of, of all of this culture and all of the comics and the movies and all the kind of stuff. I'm not really a comic book follower per se anymore because I just don't get enough out of the medium as, as I would like. So I haven't read a Superman comic book um, by and large for a long time. Now that being said, I was going into this movie hoping that this, particular story would inform me of what I've missed of the Superman story from when I stopped reading the Superman comic book, you know, in general. And I felt that I was getting a good story. I felt like I was getting the, not the Smallville story and not obviously Superman Returns. Um, It was, okay, I'm going to start from scratch. I'm just going to forget everything that I knew about it and just say, okay, um, 
okay, I'm going to buy my first Superman comic. And this is the story it's going to tell me. And I thought it actually told it very well. A couple, there were a couple of things that I, I kind of disagreed with here and there from a, just because I, I, I have all this baggage of Superman with me, like, you know, you know, not taking the life thing and, and maybe the, the Jonathan Kent thing may have just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. But the more I watch this movie, it's like reading a, reading a good comic book or like a good trade paperback. The more I can really pay attention to the smaller details, the more I love the movie because when I saw it in the theater, I liked it a lot but I wasn't its greatest champion. And the more I understand it, the more I can get into the, okay, I see where they're going with this. It's not the Superman that I personally loved when I was growing growing up as a kid, but this makes sense to me now from a modern storytelling. So it's, it's hard for me to juggle it in my mind because again, I brought into the movie what, you know, all this expectation, I got something different, but I can see it Sometimes I have to relegate myself to the fact that not all movies are made just for me anymore. Not like when I was a kid. It's like, hey, this movie was made for me. It, it, it pleased me at every level. But it has to tell a story for a newer audience, an audience that starts, you know, the, the new 10-year-old in me or the new 12-year-old in me that's moving forward, getting this new Superman. Is it the greatest Superman story ever told? I don't think so. But I think it's a great movie version of Superman. Or Man of Steel. You know, it's interesting. I was reading a quote earlier tonight from uh, George Clooney, right? And he said that uh, when he was when he was when he was going to be Batman and Batman and Robin, uh, he was kind of sick of the whole brooding kind of emotionally tormented Batman, and he that's why he played him so you know campy, kind of, you know, kind of like Adam West did, but kind of goofy and silly like he did. Uh, in Batman and Robin. And at some point you have to ask yourself, and I'm not saying, I'm not trying to make crazy claims here. I'm not saying that Man of Steel is this point, but you have to ask yourself, what is the essence of the character and why are we trying to tell a story about that character? And on a few levels, Man of Steel, I like Man of Steel in a lot of ways, but on a few levels, to me, it's just like, what's the, why are you trying to tell a Superman story then? Just tell a, a super powerful alien sci-fi story why why does this have to be superman if you're trying to change so much i don't understand and maybe that's just me and i'll admit that that could just be my bias and i'm totally okay with that uh but i just uh, you know it's like if you're changing uh, why you know the inspiration that he has from his parents and and the motivation he has to do what he does at some point are you still telling a superman story or like you guys have mentioned maybe this isn't a superman story this is a Clark story. This is just Clark Kent story, I guess. Which, of course, we've had ten seasons of at this point, and some other. But, 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 maybe I'm just looking at this from the wrong perspective. But to me, it's it's really hard to reconcile uh, this mythos with the 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 character that I understand as Superman. And I'll accept responsibility if it's me. But it's some on some level, I'm just like, eh, okay. All right, I guess I get it. That's fine. Um, I get what you're saying because it was the same thing. I mean, God, they would have to tranquilize me to get me into the 2009 Star Trek. I mean, literally. It's because all my friends were like, we're going to drag you to this movie because we think it's going to be awesome. There's this Star Trek, and I, I'm air quoting for the, for the listeners, and then there's the new Star Trek. And I, th- I, 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 I just I have to approach the same way with Superman. There's the Superman that I grew up with that brought me to this point. 
but there's also the opportunity to open myself up for this new story. Am I going to agree with every single part of it? Probably not. And, and you're not, Daniel. And that's, and that's fine. That's, that's why we have this awesome discussion that's going on. But I think there is a lot of merit going on with, with, their, with the retelling. And I think that the biggest challenge for any of these new directors and new storytellers that are taking on these huge properties are the, that fine line where they have to walk the balance of staying traditional and staying true to their own beliefs as storytellers. Where does that fall in favor of making a better story? You know, it's like if you, you, you want them, you know, not you in particular, but the audience, they want them to be new and fresh and vibrant and bring me something new. And then in the same breath, how dare you change it? You know, and, and it's, it's kind of like, you know what? They have to make that decision. And it's like, you know, go for the change. You're, you're probably going to offend far few than you're going to inspire. And it's this new audience that you have to inspire so that they will continue uh, allowing us to perpetuate this genre and to and to seek out all these different types of storytelling because by and large I mean, I'm 42 years old that's not the audience they want to capture they want to capture 12 year olds you know so give them that story give them the story that's probably going to make most sense to you know a modern teenager as opposed to uh, somebody who's who's probably read more superman than than uh, than I would like to right now so uh, it's again it's that's the way I approach a movie like this it's 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 great in its own right but there is the traditionalist in me that kind of fights some of the idealisms. One of the things that I, I just I really responded to was the fact that they were taking all of these pieces that I had read in, in comics, whether it was Birthright, whether it was Superman Earth One, Norm and I were talking about that today, whether it was the new fifty two version of Superman. They were taking all these different versions of Superman and, and kind of cobbling it together into one version and he had bits and pieces of of all of these things uh, that I saw and I I, re- I really like that and that's kind of what you have to do when you do a comic book character in film because he's going to be an amalgamation of all the things that you either liked or responded to in the comics throughout its entire run you know and if you're a comic book fan like you I know Zack Snyder is you tend to be somebody who knows the entire mythos you know and so you just pull together all the pieces that work for you and the story that you're trying to tell because you know if you're not going to bring something new to superman on screen then why do it in the first place just don't even do it it's it's not it's it's not worth doing you know if you're just going to retell donner's version or what everybody kind of liked brian singer tried that it's called superman's returns and people hated it for the most part, even though I, I think it's a, it's a great film and it has a lot of validity, there's some issues with it because it's trying to recapture a time frame and a, and a state of mind that we are not in anymore as a people. We have moved on from where we were, you know, in the late 70s to where we are now in the 21st century and how we respond to things, how we think about things. And so therefore, Superman who has already been changing throughout the years. I mean, if you went back and read the original Action Comics number one with Superman, I don't think that that's what most people think of Superman these days. But that's who he was originally. So Superman has been changing for a very, very long time. For for 75 years, Superman has been in flux. And therefore, this is just another iteration of Superman. And... Um, that's one of the things that I love about this character is he's malleable enough to be able to tell 
And I think he's still very relevant. I think this movie depicts the man behind the icon. And the movie is about Clark getting to kind of speak for himself. And we get to experience the story on the road to becoming the icon. And I think that is a really cool thing, especially when... You know, so many origin stories, they just kind of, as quick as they can, they get them into the suit and they get them, you know, doing their thing and they're that person just like that. And uh, this is the reason behind. And I I love that about this film. So you guys were going to rate Man of Steel and uh, what would you guys give it a rating? What about you, Daniel? Oh, you're going to start with me. Um, uh, <laughs> oh, good. I don't even know what I would rate Men of Steel. That is a, uh, if, if there's a 10 scale, 1 to 10, I guess I would probably give it a 4-ish. Uh, right around there. There's some things it does really well. There's some things I really, really like. Um, but I think it fundamentally misses the mark. I think it's... Uh, a lot like what I like about um, a lot of the Star Trek I like, I think Superman is optimistic. And this film is not an optimistic film. I feel like it's a very drab, very uh, depressing, kind of unfun film for most of the time. And I don't mean to beat up on it or anything. It's just I think that it misses the mark in terms of of the flow and... and yeah, again, I, there are a lot of things it does really well that I really, really like. But um, it, it, as far as uh, a Superman film, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with four. I guess that's pretty bad, but I'm still gonna say I'm gonna, I'm gonna use Dan's actually scale. I'm gonna say four, but I'm gonna use it out of a scale of five. I so I'm gonna, I'm gonna say four space USB drives out of five. Um, <laughs> and the reason why I say this is because. Um, I think, for me, I think the deck is already stacked against Superman in terms of the mythos, in terms of the universe. It's so well known that it's it's not like an Iron Man. It's not like a Captain America where their interpretation that Marvel's doing right now, it's really the first live-action interpretation. They can set the deck. They can set the, the tone in terms of who these characters are. With Superman, you have all this baggage right from the get-go, much like Star Trek. It's probably one of the most, Man of Steel is probably one of the most polarizing films I've ever seen. The internet debate about it has been insane. And I think it's because there's just so much baggage right there, right? So right off the bat, if you you either do something like Brian Singer and you get kind of burnt for that, you do something like this, you get burnt for that. I'm sure there's a middle somewhere, but the fact that the character itself has such a large cultural footprint, that in itself for me I think has... It's almost like something to be overcome in this movie. For me, the reinterpretation works, and I think rewatching it kind of further allows you to see that. But I think, you know, viscerally, if you were coming in to expect a Superman that was, you know, Captain America in tone, that is kind of like the tone that we saw in Lois and Clark and all these other interpretations, then you're clearly going to have um, a hard time buying into it, right? So I think. For me, if if you come in with different expectations, it's totally going to change that. But so for me, it worked. So four out of five uh, space USB drives. Now this is a gosh. I know we have to wrap things up, but this is probably one of the harder things I've had to grade because coming into this movie and leaving the movie, it still left me with kind of like a 
a lot of questions, a lot of personal questions like, do I really like this? Am I getting caught up in the moment? Um, is it fair for me to compare it to something that I've, I've kept on my pedestal as the watermark of my superhero movies for all this time? Uh, am I looking for something to supplant it? Am I looking for uh, that new hope that, that this is going to be the, you know, the model for all of DC's movies moving forward? Because, and this is for a completely different podcast, I have issues beyond belief with the Batman movies. But I wanted this to be the superhero movie that would set the tone for my hope in DC moving forward. And it almost made it. It almost made it. And why I say that is because I still think that there are a few flawed moments in the movie. Um, I think I've already discussed some of those points here. But I do think that it has the spirit of where they want to take this character moving forward from a property standpoint for what DC wants to, or how DC wants to rebrand this hero for today's audience. I'm not sure if that is the right thing or the wrong thing, because for me, Superman has always stood for truth, justice in the American way. That's how I was raised on Superman. But does that anachronize, anachronize me and anachronize the character in a way? Because I have a certain set of moral beliefs and my visions of right and wrong. And Superman brings that out uh, in a certain way when I see Superman on screen. Does this particular Superman do that for me? No. Does he, does he become the Superman that they wanted him to be from, the, from the, the, their creation and, and their strength of writing? Yes. So I'm going to give this two grades. I'm going to give this, for me, it's going to be a B plus B. Because B plus B. It almost <laughs> makes it. That's a yeah. good one. The B plus the B plus is for their achievement in design, Hans Zimmer's score, uh, the visual effects, just the uh, the sound effects editing, all the technical merits I thought were just absolutely top notch. Uh, again, I still have some issues with the storytelling, so when I was in art school, we always got graded on technique and effort. Because they're not, they're sometimes they're mutually exclusive, and I felt that this was getting a B plus B for me. It's funny because Superman, especially in, and I think the late '90s and and 2000s, really got knocked by a lot of people for being big, boring, and a Boy Scout. And that's frustrating because I think as you look through the comics, Superman is much more relatable and and much more somebody that I can look to for lots of different reasons. Um, one, because he is always an outsider. Uh, there, there's lots of things. Uh, th- and that's what I love about this film is that it pulls in all of these ideas about how the character of, of Clark Kent and, and who he will become as Superman actually understand me as a person and instill the insecurities that we all carry with us through our lives. We all wish kind of we could be Superman, I think, a lot of at a lot of points in our life. One, we'd like to be able to fly, we like to be invulnerable, and all these kind of things. But there's a lot of, of what it means to be Superman that, that he carries with him that make him just as human, if that makes sense. And I think that's what they were trying to bring out in this, is that this is a person who is like us, who is growing and having to learn and, and having to, in some ways, make it up as he goes along. He, he's not perfect from the get-go. He will become a Messiah-like figure, but he's, he's not there yet um, because he, he isn't, you know, God-like. He, he must, might have some powers that kind of resemble a god, but he's not a god. He, 
in the end, he, he's just a being a lot like us. He's just more powerful. And with that brings a whole slew of, a, of, of responsibilities and whatnot that I don't, I wouldn't want on my shoulders. And I think that's one of the things I liked about the end of the film where Martha and her son are talking and they're at the graveside. And, and she said, your father always believed that when your time came, your, your shoulders would be able to bear the weight of the world. And I love that because it's it's a reminder to me that what they were trying to do with this Superman, what they were trying to do with this Clark and this Superman is make him real, relevant, and relatable for today's audience. Uh, and I think that they've done that. And one of the things that I think they'll continue to do is is have Superman continue to grow and mature into who we know him to be again as this kind of iconic figure. But I'm enjoying the experience of finally getting to watch Superman go on that journey on film instead of it just being him already showing up. And for me, I think unlike anybody on even on this podcast, this is my favorite superhero film. I, I give this one one S shield uh, out of because one because it means ho- <laughs> out of one because uh, it means it means hope. And I came out of the film the first time really liking the movie. But as I've watched it, now many times i have come to appreciate even more as i watch it and i think just as jarell tells him that you know you will give people of earth an ideal to strive towards they will race behind you they will stumble and they will fall but in time they will join you in the sun cow in time you will help them accomplish wonders it's gonna take clark some time to get to that point as well and i think that's what this whole film is about and that's really where it's kind of setting that DC universe as these heroes try and make their way towards that. I just think it's interesting that the Marvel films started off with everybody being heroic and they're deconstructing them now till we get to this point where we're about to see an Ultron where it all goes to hell. They started off all heroic and awesome and and they're kind of taking those characters apart now and making them grittier and darker and all that jazz whereas I feel like DC is kind of starting with a little bit darker of a place and will build out to being a little bit brighter. So the characters kind of grow that way instead of backwards. So I just love it. This is my favorite film. I'm unapologetic about loving Man of Steel. And guys, I had a blast spending two hours talking about my favorite superhero movie with you. I appreciate you all spending this time with us. But it's not the only thing we've been talking about Trek FM the past week. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. Because it's, it's actually legitimately trying to say something. Yes, very Star Trek. It may be the most Star Trek of all Star Trek. Yeah, it's definitely what I would point to as being, this is what science fiction is about. Earl Grey. Kovac will tell us to experience Bij sometimes, in which case we will draw the Bij card, Klingon word for pain. Is so it birthday? It is. It is. It, it's it's going to be a lot of fun. To the journey! That's the one thing we could take from Homecoming is like paragraph one, Chakotay and Seven break up. That's for real. Yeah, they that shake happened. hands and go, hey, it's been fun. It's been nice. Thanks for the picnic. Eh, see ya. Commentary, Trek stars. Fair At this enough. point, like, they could say, yeah, why not? Star Wars crossover. I would I would essentially say, fine. Both franchises are dead. Let's just sew them together and see what happens. Melodic Treks. 
one of the most well thought out alien races that you only see in one episode. Yeah, and the music is, is it's menacing without being over menacing, if that makes yeah. sense. Axonar, the official podcast. I think Justin Lin is a, is a fascinating choice to direct because the Fast and the Furious movies, even though, yeah, they're action, adventure, road race movies, are really about a family. The 602 Club. That's really cool, though. I mean, I, I think that is uh, a fantastic way to get to see just about any movie is, is kind of being able to watch it through a kid's eyes. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out these shows and find out what we've been talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, if you're an Apple user, just hit that subscribe button. It really helps us out greatly. and It makes it easier for other listeners to find the show when they search iTunes. And if you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website and grab the RSS link as well. Norm, it is awesome that you were here tonight, my associate producer here on the show. Tell everybody where they can find you online. Well, if you want to get in touch with me, you can always find me here on the network or on the Babel Conference, our dedicated Facebook listeners page. Or on Twitter at Norman Lau, that's N-O-R-M-A-N-L-A-O. And I'm also a huge supporter of Alec Peters on the Axonar Project, and you can find me on the dedicated Axonar fan group page on Facebook. You can also listen to me here on Trek FM as the host for Warp 5, our dedicated enterprise podcast. And lastly, I'm the proud sponsor of Trek FM through Patreon, and I'm an associate producer of four shows here on the network, Warp 5, The Orb, The 602 Club, and Axonar, the official Axonar podcast. Will, I'm so glad you could be here with us tonight. Uh, tell everybody where they can find you online. So you can also find me on the Babel, Babel Conference. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at Will underscore Win, spelled N-G-U-Y-E-N. And um, I'm also an associate producer of uh, The Orb, uh, Earl Grey, and Literary Treks, which is a show you host, Matthew, with Dan Gunther. And um, you can always find me online, always talking about everything geeky. Daniel, thank you so much for being here tonight. Where can everybody find you? Everybody can find me here on the network, uh, hosting uh, Earl Grey every week with my co-hosts, Philip and Darren. And as well on Twitter, uh, my handle is 1UpDan. That is the number one, not the word. Well, another way that you can help keep all of our shows coming to each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. If you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, you'll find all of our current goals and milestone contribution levels and the great perks that we have for you. Guys, these perks include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits, seats on our content development team, and more. We are a listener-supported network, and without you, we really can't happen so we appreciate any support you give us again you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trek.fm if you'd like to contact us you can do that at trek.fm slash contact if you'd like to leave us a voicemail look in the sidebar on the show page or go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm we're on twitter at trek.fm facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm and as everybody's mentioned the babel conference just type b-a-b-e-l into the search field on facebook or go to our website at Trek FM and click discussion on the menu bar. Before we go, we'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor who helps bring the 602 Club and all of our shows to you each week. And our sponsor is, of course, Audible.com. Audible is a great way for you to read all those books that you've 
always wanted to read and you just don't have time for with your busy schedule. And as a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice along with a 30-day trial just to see how great Audible is. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And we thank Audible for being a supporter of the 602 Club and the network. And guys, of course, you can find me on my own personal blog at 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com. You can find me on Twitter at mattrushing 2 And you can find me doing a couple other shows here on the network. The Orb with Christopher Jones, where we talk about Deep Space Nine and literary tracks, as Will mentioned, with Dan, where we talked about the books and the comics of Star Trek. Well, guys, thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear? American as it gets. Look, I'm here to help. But it has to be on my own terms. And you have to convince Washington of that. Even if I were willing to try, what makes you think they'd listen? I don't know, General. Guess I'll just have to trust you. 